0: This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM.
1: From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Women at Work on Business Radio. Here is your host, Laura Zarrow. Welcome to Women at Work and our weekly conversation about how we can get more women to join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarro, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics, for today's special show recorded at the 20th Annual Wharton Women in Business Summit. Wharton Women in Business, what we fondly refer to as WIB, is a professional organization superbly run by our graduate students that strives to expand career leadership and networking opportunities for women studying at Wharton. Their annual conference brings together some of the country's sharpest female business leaders to discuss relevant issues, in addition to creating a unique networking space for students to engage with employers. Held at the Union League of Philadelphia, the setting was a really powerful reminder of why WIB is so important. The Union League, for those of you who are not familiar with it, is undoubtedly one of Philadelphia's grandest structures, a French Renaissance building that fills an entire city block with one of the most magnificent insides you can imagine. It was built in 1865 as a home for a league whose mission it was to support the Union and President Lincoln. Over time, it became a hub for the region's leaders in business, technology, education, law, government, and Republican politics at all levels. As you might guess, it was exclusively for men and remained that way until 1980 when Mary Roebling became the league's first woman member. The league's first woman president, Joan Carter, was elected in 2011. So it can show you it was long a bastion of male privilege and power. Joan Carter's portrait hangs in the ballroom along with all the other male presidents over time. So when 500 of Wharton's women gathered for the conference, they were both figuratively and literally inhabiting a space to which they had long been absent. The conference team did an amazing job of organizing an event that was optimistic, proactive, and inclusive, welcoming Wharton's men who are our partners in building a more diverse and inclusive workplace. This year's theme was Dare to Lead, and I was honored to host the opening keynote, a conversation with the CEO of Match Group, Mandy Ginsberg. What you'll hear this hour is my chat with her. But before we begin, let me tell you just a little bit about Mandy. Prior to becoming CEO of Match Group, which includes OkCupid, Plenty of Fish, and Tinder, Mandy served as the CEO of Princeton Review. Her other roles included Vice President of Consumer Technology for Edelman Public Relations Worldwide and Vice President of Worldwide Marketing at I2Tech. In this first part of our conversation, I asked Mandy, class of 2001, what was going on in her life during her first year at Wharton. Listen in as she shares her story.
2: Before I start... um I just wanted to say that uh, I love seeing a room full of incredible, powerful women. I, I am one of three girls in my family. I have two daughters. Um, I grew up playing competitive soccer. I played from for Cal undergrad, and I've always surrounded myself with um, a lot of women and grew, I think, a lot of my strength and power comes from that. And so um, really phenomenal to see you all together. And also you do have to call out a few of these amazing men who are supporting us here. Um, so I'll tell you about my first month, which I think you all are about a month in. Um, it was probably the one of the most um, unusual first months at, at, uh, at Wharton. So uh, I was living on the West Coast. I ended up getting into Wharton. This is 1999, I think, yep, 99, 98. And um, I'd gotten into Wharton, I was, I think, 28 years old. And I wanted to come, but I was gonna have a baby a month before I started. So I thought, I hope they let me defer. And I was so nervous about calling the school to say, I'm really sorry, but I'm gonna have a baby. And what was really remarkable is the stu- school was just, they were great about it. They said, we get it. We'll defer you for a year, just come next year. So now I had a one-year-old daughter. She was you know, just about one years old. And, um, and then uh, I, they had at the time, because um, this is 1999, we had math camp because I was uh, English literature major at Berkeley. Um, so I needed to brush up on my math skills. And about two, two weeks into math camp, um, and this is a little personal, but my um, husband at the time said to me, I remember, I actually remember where we were, it was not that far from here. He said, um, you know, we are actually not that happy together and I don't, I don't think we should be together. And so I'm gonna, he, he was from abroad, he's like, I'm gonna move, you know, go back home. And I, uh, the, really the first thing in my head was, for, well, first of all, he says, we're not that happy. I'm like, what married couple's happy? So, but then I was like, okay, I actually, should does love business, I shouldn't say that. But, um, but I, I remember the first thought of my mind was like, oh my God, I already paid for my tuition. I can't get the money back. And, um, and so my first month was, wow, I got to figure out Wharton with all that's coming at me with a one-year-old baby, and it's all me. And so um, I definitely spent that first month feeling like there is no way I'm going to figure this out. Um, but I think that 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 resiliency and that test improved to me, especially after that first year, that if I can get through this, then
1: I can get through a lot. So, Mandy, as you, you know, and I'm sure you guys will all testify that you come in and it is like a marathon at double time. There's so much going on, so many opportunities available to you. How did you manage this both practically and how did you manage it emotionally so that you could balance the pressures that you were having in both both parts of your life?
2: I think if someone would have been able to say to me, Mandy, it's all going to be fine. You're going to run a you know, 15, $17 billion public company in 20 years and it'll all work out, I would have been like, phew, okay, and then I'll figure it out. But unfortunately we don't have that little person <laughs> in our ear telling us what's gonna happen in the future and we make our own future. But, um, but it's really easy to lose perspective. Um, and you know, the one big piece of advice I'd say is it, it doesn't feel, you know, there's so much, I remember I spent my first three months stunning a million case interviews. I I have no idea why I did that (laughs) in (laughs) retrospect. (laughs) Um, But I also think that, you know, you gotta sort of not try not to get caught up with this, what I should be doing and try to figure out what you wanna do. And then the other piece that it's really hard to figure this out now and maybe the second years can understand a little bit more, but um, the most important thing for me at Wharton looking back was um, just the relationships I created and today, All of my um, female friends, they're my biggest champions and biggest supporters. And I didn't quite realize that back then. And frankly, I didn't have quite the time and energy I could put into those female relationships. But these are my friends who are investment bankers that are helping me figure out. I, I took over this public company in January, giving me advice on Running a public company, giving me advice on compensation, dealing with boys, you name it, and um, and I think it's that those relationships that I drew that I've you know drawn on that you know I'd say take the time to invest in the people that are sitting next to you in your cohort in your learning teams.
1: Many when you you mentioned that you were doing all these you know case interviews, you know boning up on all of this stuff. Um, what did you come into Wharton wanting to do? What were you preparing for at that moment?
2: Well, I I had a really interesting conversation my first month at Wharton, and it just, to the point where I I said, oh my gosh, I'm in the wrong place. Um, Because there was a a guy, I'll never forget this conversation, and I said, so, you know, what do you wanna do with your career? And he said to me, I wanna be the CEO of a Fortune 500 company. And I I looked at him like, that is the dumbest goal I've ever heard in my life. (laughs) It's so like who who thinks that way, um, and I. He's like, well, what do you want to do? And I was like, oh, I don't know. I just want to be passionate about something I do every day and feel like it gives me meaning. And he looked at me like I was smoking crazy. Like, what are you? Why are you doing here? And so I will tell you, I, I what I always had was real drive and ambition. I, I but I'm probably more drive than ambition. And. I mean, I just honestly, I didn't know what I wanted to do with my career. And when I was um, working prior, I worked, you know, seven years. I did a bunch of things prior to graduate school. But my older sister went to Wharton, and her friends had the most interesting careers in lives. And I thought, well, I want to be like them. And so ultimately, what you know got me here was just opening up perspectives, and you know, frankly, career change. And sometimes I think that. Maybe Wharton saw something in me that I even I didn't see in me because there's just not enough public company CEOs, particularly in tech. I mean, there's very few. We can count them on a couple hands. Public companies that are over ten billion dollars, uh, ten billion dollars, um, and and I would say that um, you know this was the first chapter in my path. Not necessarily because I learned such amazing things at Wharton, which I did, but it was more. It just opened up my perspective, and then just gave me, frankly, just quite a bit of credibility that I wouldn't have had had I not done it.
1: I appreciate how you, you were trying to sort out drive versus ambition. I think that perhaps there's a qualitative and a quantitative distinction to ambition, because it sounds like you did have a qualitative ambition to do something that you were passionate about and that excited you. And that then there's a kind of quantitative ambition that I want this title or I want to make this money or I want to be regarded this way. And you had this drive. Um, When we first talked, you mentioned that you were going down a kind of entrepreneurial route, but you wound up working in a large corporation. How and why did that happen?
2: Because I had to pay for baby formula. (laughs) No, I I started um, a business while at Wharton with a couple of students um, who are incredibly entrepreneurial, and we started a a technology for trucking companies to um, uh, do load maximizations, because like half the trucks in America were operating at 20% capacity. It seems like silly. Um, And so we spent quite a bit of energy and time our second year, and then we kind of got to the point where I knew I'd have to not make an income for a couple years, and I just, the trade-off was just tough. And, you know, life happens. And at the time, and this is where all the, you know, you sort of plan, you have all these ideas about what you're going to do, and then life takes you in these circuitous routes, and it's almost how you adapt to it as well. And my mom, um, when I was in business school, was um, diagnosed with ovarian cancer and got really sick. And I thought, I, I'm from Dallas, Texas, and which is where Match um, is it, the corporate office is headquartered, and we've got. Shouldn't talk about. It, we've got a lot of apps. We've got Tinder, okay, QBid. We've got a huge presence in Asia and um, in Europe. But the headquarters were in Dallas, Texas, and they were looking for someone to run a startup at the time in Dallas, Texas, which is how I ended up at Match. But I thought I had been on the West Coast for ten years. I had lived in the Middle East. I'd been all over, and I thought I'm never going to go to Dallas, Texas it's not a big enough market, it's just too provincial, there's just no way, it's too conservative. And then, you know, I got the call where my mom said, I'm, I, you know, this is not looking great. And so I thought, I was a single mom, I just wanted to get back home and spend time with my family. And it was the best decision I ever made because I got to spend a couple years, um, and my mom and I had a really tough relationship, and so it wasn't like it was the easiest decision, but we spent some of the kind of the best years of her life, um, and I gave her the gift of, you know, being around her granddaughter, and I, I just, I never looked back, and so sometimes, you know, you got to make these decisions not just with your head, but with your heart, um, so that's really where I took this path, but I always felt that you have to, for me especially, um, we are a huge company, but we always act like, I do think we run it like the underlog, like we're always scared. And we're always <laughs> fe- feeling that we're going to, you know, what's the next growth? Where, where do we go next? And so I think that you can still work in a big company, but, you know, be an entrepreneur.
1: One of the other things that we see as a difference between big companies and entrepreneurship is not just that kind of startup mentality and the drive and the anxiety but it's also a quality of the culture and the community and you told me a really interesting story that also ties into your mom's cancer and your own uh, your own recognition of the gene that you carried could you tell us a little bit about that and what that was like in your the environment where you worked?
2: um yeah sure so i you know my mom had ovarian cancer she passed away and she tested positive for a genetic defect called BRCA1 BRCA. And it's like Anjali Jolie very publicly talked about it. So I ever I reference that story and people are like, oh, but you have a incredibly high chance of uh, breast cancer, um, over 90% in your lifetime, and a high chance of ovarian cancer. And my grandmother, great aunt, my mother and my aunt all died of ovarian cancer. Um, and I watched my mom and my aunt die roughly within about a year of each other, a little more than a year of each other. And so um, when the night actually my mom died, I said to the oncologist, I said, why don't we take that genetic test? And he said, you're in luck. I've got one blood test. So we took the blood test. She actually passed away that night. And then a couple of weeks later, he called me and said, she's, you know, she was positive. No surprise. Do you want to come in and take the test? And I said, sure, but I'm positive. And he said, how do you know? I'm like, I just know. I, just, I know I am. And so I found out that I was, a, you know, was positive, and at the time, I don't think I had, um, I don't think I had my second daughter yet. So I was like, I got to have this kid. I got remarried. I had a, um, a second daughter. So now my daughter, the, the fat baby at Wharton, is a twenty-year-old college <laughs> student, um, and now I've got a ten-year-old. But um, but after I went through that, I, I, I had just taken the job running the Match brand, and. Um, And it's funny because every job I've gotten, which I think is a very female characteristic, I thought, you know, maybe I was more vocal about it, but I was running a a small startup called Chemistry. It was about 25 million in revenue. and, And I got a call when I was three weeks into maternity leave saying, We really want you to come back for maternity leave and run match. And it was a $200 million business at the time. And my reaction was not like, this is so great. I'm like, well, I don't know if I can do it, which is such a female thing. I don't think men would say that. And I don't even know what. It was probably hormones that made me say that. And they convinced (laughs) me, like, yes, we know you can do it. I was like, I don't know if I can do that. And so um, I do think that... um, uh, I took on that match job and then I had to tell my, at the time, new um, boss who was running the portfolio at the time, I said, there's just a little catch. I, I'm a bit of a time, time bomb ticking and I, I really need to have these surgeries because I knew I needed to do the preventive prophylactic surgeries, which was a mastectomy and ultimately um, removal of you know everything else, an oophorectomy and everything else. And he said to me, um, my best friend's wife had the same thing. You got to, like, you're, really what he said, he's like, you're better off to me alive. So if you can take care of this, that would be really appreciated. That's like, <laughs> <laughs> okay. But it was such an intense operating business. And for those of you who've been in tech and especially in uh, in consumer tech, We have daily stand-ups. I mean, I'm present, I'm in the business every day. And so I had to make a real decision. And I think probably at the time, maybe 60% of the business was male, 40% women. And I was just gonna disappear for a couple weeks. And so I had sort of a choice. Do I just disappear, which would be so weird, or do I publicly talk about it? And I I had a great support system and, you know, I was very, very vocal about, um, you you know, taking on this and, the organization, I think, was better off, and, and as a result, I think you know women, especially when they've got either complications with birth or issues that they face, they I think feel much more confident about addressing these um, issues at work because they don't feel this like uncomfortable situation because you know life happens and people in these jobs and we do well because of these amazing people in jobs. Life happens to them, so we have to accommodate.
1: You know, when you talked about you're pregnant and had to tell Wharton that you were pregnant and you were nervous. I I would imagine some of that's because will they hold the place for you, but also what it means to say, this thing is happening that's getting in the way of my business goals. And then you get into this great big, exciting job and you have to share this thing that's fundamentally about your femaleness and it's gonna get in the way again. But in each case, you were greeted, welcomed in by a culture that you took the risk, but the culture supported you.
2: Yeah, and I mean, as leaders, and that's where I, I look to you all, um, as you all become leaders in the workforce, there's two things you can do. One, show up, be leaders, because people are like, why, why are there so many executives at Match Group that are women? I was like, because we have women at the top and because we attract other women. Um, and if you look across the big internet um, companies, we outpace by far um, women at the leadership positions, VP and above, and I know it's because... I'm at the top, and I recruit people all the time. I, I spend so much time closing people, and I know women have come to me and said, "I'm a, one of the reasons I took this job is because there's so many women um, at the top of the organization." So I'd say one, be there, and the second thing I would say is, you know, everything you do can affect culture, and I think I implicitly built the culture, not quite realizing it, and now I'm kind of looking back at the culture, particularly at Match, and we talk about some of the other mm-hmm. businesses that we bought, but um, but it is so important for us always as women to really manage with a female perspective in mind and and i'll tell you what i mean by that so um compensation is a really interesting Uh, i've had a lot of experience i have 1500 people who work for me i've managed a lot of people i've dealt with compensation for a long time and i am the head of um, compensation um, for a public as a board member for a public company i'm the head of the compensation committee and What I have found um, when it comes to not just culture, but compensation is, and sorry for the men in the room and (laughs) close your ears, men are just squeakier when it comes to compensation. They bang their fist on the table more. And I can't say that's 100% of the time, and there's certainly exceptions on either side, but in general, men just ask and ask and ask, and women don't. And so me, as a leader in the organization, I was always, anytime we look at, bonus and equity, et cetera, I'd always have to make sure that just because someone would bang their fist on their ta- table that doesn't meet and they added a lot of value, great, but if someone was adding value and they were female, we had to make sure we were adjusting because they weren't always gonna ask, but we had to make sure that we were being fair and we compensated people not just because of the val- not just because they asked, but because they created the value. Um, and then I think also having you know females at the top Open door um, communication. You know, anytime someone tells me they're pregnant, I'm so excited. I give them a big hug. I was terrified to tell my male leaders in the past that, you know, I was pregnant or I had, you know, had had these uh, medical issues. So I just think that we 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 will change things um, implicitly, and we we do have the power to do that.
1: Manny would you talk a little bit about what you saw at Tinder, one of the companies that Match bought, um, and how. In, in a much more, in a purposeful way, culture was changed there. What was it like, and how did it change? Sure, so
2: Tinder, which my guess is 100% of you have heard of Tinder in this room. Um, Tinder was, um, actually, it, we didn't buy it, it was an incubator. Okay. So we used to be um, part of a public company called um, I C, and we um, became public about three years ago, But while at I.C. about six years ago, um, Barry Diller, who's you know this media icon, who, who's the chairman of the company, he really wanted to push innovation, particularly mobile innovation. So they created a lab called Hatch Labs, and one of the pods, one of the teams um, that they built was a group of people that um, during a hack, I believe it was during a hackathon, they created this app, and I think the first name was called Matchbox, and they changed it to Tinder. <laughs> Um, and it's not often, but you know, cause incubations 90% of the time don't, you know, turn out much of anything, especially incubated in a big, um, company, um, in a more traditional company, but this one caught fire and you know, what happened in those early days, it really caught fire on university campuses and it was based in LA. It was young, it was growing fast. And I think that there were so many people kind of coming right out of college, going into the workforce that didn't have a lot of experience. And it became really evident that they really hadn't had anyone to look up to, to see how to behave in a work environment. Because, and we, we for people who've been at startups, it can be kind of a party. Um, and you work really hard, but you stay, there's, you go and have drinks afterwards and everyone's, you know, hanging out and dating and working hard. And so the lines between personal life and professional life just get mixed. And I think that it's very typical for a, um, for a startup. And then it had to grow because the business was growing like crazy. We had to ca- catch up. And so I'd say now we have, hun- I mean, back then for the first few years, there were dozens of people. And now we've got over 300 people, including a lot of experienced engineers. So I'd say that, you know, it, there's a number of things that we did to kind of, you know, we went through whatever, you know, the terrible twos and then puberty and then, you know, <laughs> teenage years all in like one period of time. And I think that now we're kind of on the other, or maybe we're in college, you know, we're on the other side of it, but it does take, you know, not just experienced leaders, but making sure that um, particularly women in the culture there, that they were heard and putting together training and you know, teaching people what, what is appropriate behavior, what you should be doing in a work environment and, Honestly, once we put a lot of education and process in place, people kind of got it. And um and I think now it's a, you know, it's it's a lot, it's a, it's a better and uh, I would say, you know, more mature place to work. So it's, you know, it definitely happens And we and some of you out there have probably been I actually was talking to someone who's at a startup um, over the summer and, you know, we, we those early stages are sort of the wild west sometimes at companies.
1: Given how many women, I'm delighted to report, are pursuing entrepreneurship, but who are also confronting bro culture um, when they go into the entrepreneurial community, what advice do you have for them now as they're living this exciting MBA life where your personal and professional relationships are forming? Um, is it um, a grayscale? of shifting into harder divisions between those parts of our lives. what? How can we both build connections and relationships without losing the distance that can keep things professional?
2: My strong belief is that a very small percentage of men um, create real bad behavior and they give a lot of other people a bad name. And so um, I would say don't be afraid of relationships with men. I mean, that's, it's crazy. I mean, I've heard so many arguments like, well, men can't even have a drink with someone. I was like, that's ridiculous. Of course you can, that's stupid. Um, what I would tell you is that bro cultures don't get created in organizations where there are a lot of women. They just don't. Um, and women entrepreneurs and leaders um, don't propagate crappy bro culture, and so <laughs> I would say, you know, depending on what you're doing, and especially if you're heading into an entrepreneur, set the set the tone at the top if you're creating the culture, and then I do think that, um, you know, my hope is that um, you all in this room can can change that culture, and I get it. I mean, there's gonna be some companies where, or some organizations are just too male-dominated at the top, and maybe it'll be time, or maybe you shouldn't work at those companies, but I, I just think that um, all of the, um, things that we read in the headlines, honestly, with regard to harassment, inappropriate behavior, just frankly, just wouldn't happen if women, there were more CEOs and one, more women leaders. And so, I mean, that's really our answer. We've got a lot of work ahead of us to get there, but it is, it, it is, it will change because there are going to be more of us that are going to be in the workforce leading these organizations.
1: We need to take a short break, but stay with us. We'll have the second half of my conversation with Mandy Ginsberg, the CEO of Match Group, in just a few minutes. I'm Laura Zarro, and you're listening to Women at Work here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 132. You're listening to Women at Work on Business Radio. Here again is Laura Zarro. Welcome back to Women at Work and our weekly conversation about how to get more women to join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics. And in this hour, we're playing back a conversation I was lucky enough to have with Mandy Ginsberg, the CEO of Match Group at the annual Wharton Women in Business Summit here in Philadelphia. In the first half, you got to hear how Mandy had to face some major personal challenges while taking on some of the biggest professional responsibilities of her life and how important the organizational culture was everywhere she went to making that happen. We got to hear some of how she observed major change at Tinder under really purposeful leadership and how that was able to actually change bro culture. In the second part of our conversation, we're going to talk more about gender stereotypes and why we need more women leaders. You should know this was taped just a day after the Senate Judiciary hearing that the entire country is still talking about.
2: I have a couple of stories where you know I'm like, okay, ladies, we still have a lot of work to do, and so this is one of them. Um, and then again, people ask me all the time how, how you know have you faced a lot of glass ceilings? <laughs> so this was one that I just I I, I just couldn't believe it. So uh, there's been a lot of change at. Our businesses. I run roughly, I think, around ten brands, um, maybe a little bit more, but t- you know, ten big businesses, big brands, and um, and we have CEOs. I, I have CEOs across all these businesses. Um, Tinder. We had a, a whole uh, the guy I worked with before who left. He was running both Tinder and the public company, so I ran the public company. We had to find someone who um, to run Tinder. He's actually a Penn grad. He's an engineer. He is an entrepreneur. He's great. He's the farthest thing from bro culture in the world. He's like a self-proclaimed geek and a real intellectual, and he's phenomenal. <laughs> but um, he, he had been running OkCupid so, for uh, a couple of years, and so got to see the impact that he had on that business and his leadership skills. And so we asked him to move to L.A. to go run that Tinder business, which is a rocket ship, and it's creating this incredible growth. Um, you know, and really helping us drive our stock price, et cetera. But, um, so Ellie gets put in the role, I think in like October, November last year, right around the time I had been just announced that I was gonna become public company CEO in like January. I was gonna assume the role in January. And so we went to the Tinder holiday party and I don't know that many people at Tinder because I hadn't spent a lot of time at Tinder because um, I was running all the other U.S. businesses like Match and OkCupid okay and Plenty of Fish and had my hands full. And so as we are going around, he and I don't know everyone, so I'm now the new, his boss and he's now the new boss. And so we are going around and we were talking to people. and. I was sort of selling Ellie. I'm like, he's so great. I saw what he did at OKCupid. Okay the organization's going to love him. And this young guy, who I think was on in the product organization, he said, oh, he says, now I know, Ellie, why you're so successful. And he said, why? He says, because you have such a supportive wife. I was like, "What?" And he says, "No, no, she's my boss, dude." <laughs> so, and he's like, "Oh, I, I, I didn't know that." And, and so it was just so funny. And he was horrified and embarrassed, <laughs> and um, and I mean, really, like I, 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 almost felt bad for the guy. But it just, I mean, he it just goes to show you that we still have work to do. And it just cracked me up that I was selling this guy, and he thought I was selling him because, you know, I was his partner, so. Um, and the other story I have, which, you know, hopefully you all will never, ever have to experience this. This was about 10 years ago, maybe eight years ago. I was running Match. We were growing at like 25% a year. Things were on fire at the time. Well, I thought they were on fire, and maybe not even relative to what we saw with sort of the Tinder growth, but we had a board meeting, and we had one of our um, board ma- members' advisors who's it, been in business for a very long time and really was an icon and he sat there and listened to our presentation loves the category, loves the business and then the next day, and I was wearing you know a typical suit for a board meeting and the next day there was a smaller meeting and at the time the guy who was the CEO who I was reporting to, he had emailed me because I was still in New York and he said hey can you bring me those numbers you showed me and I said sure, so I printed out the piece of paper, I walked it in and I was wearing jeans and a ponytail so I'll give him that and I walked in and I I said here's what you asked for and he said great and this advisor looked up at and he's like can you get me a cup of coffee I was running a 200 million dollar business at the time and I I just I was like shocked I I was like "I, I, I guess and I I walked out the door and I closed it I was like I actually don't know what to do I I don't even, I don't know what to do. I was so shocked. I was like, should I get the coffee and throw it on him? Should I spit in it? I mean, this is really what was going on in my mind. And, And just then he comes running out and he said, I am so sorry. I didn't look up. I didn't realize it was you. I said, yeah, but if it was a man, you wouldn't have asked. And he said, you're right.
1: It's amazing how that moment captures something that I think so many women experience which, I mean, I think we experience it as humans, when somebody does something that's just galling and you're caught in the moment, you wish you had the snappy comeback. But I think as women we experience it a lot because there's the the dynamic of the politics of the situation as well as our individual dignity and how to make the decision in that moment. It sounds to me like one of the things that happened when you left the room was that the other people in that room supported you and clarified him about who you were. Most likely, and so it comes back to, you know, there's a culture within a community that deals with these things. Um, Now that's a small trespass, even though a painfully common one. Um, Almost all of us who have been in business for a while have stories like that to tell. But then there are also the really difficult situations where one's playing out on the national stage and they happen within organizations. As an organizational leader, when you can see how you're trying to prevent sexual harassment in the workplace by creating a good culture. When it does emerge, how do you handle it? How do you help your organization learn how to handle those moments?
2: Um, I think this is really important for all of you. And I'm now coming up to, I'm almost 50, so I'm 48. Um, Every single one of my friends at Wharton and who I grew up with, we 100% of us have faced some ridiculous sexual comment, been hit on, and it was so funny I was having a conversation with a few um, of my female board members and and we were saying how, you know, in the 90s or you know, I think it's the 80s and 90s we would, comets would come at us, and we'd be like, oh, I can, like, I, I can be funny or push that off, and we'd go off on our life, and we're like, oh, I'm tough, because I just let it roll off me, and that's not, I mean, I, we, that, I think, happened then, and, you know, it was interesting, because part of it is, like, we could, we can't do that, because what about the next generation, or what about the next woman that that happens to inside of our organizations or outside of organizations. And so what I'd say is, I hope to God that your generation does not deal with what my generation dealt with, because it's, it's unacceptable. I mean, my I went to an all-girls school. The number of women that I grew up with that were in the workforce and were hit on by high level executives when they were trying to make a break in their careers and preyed on that power is just, it's disgusting and unacceptable. And so I would say, um, I want to make sure that I create a uh, workplace that both men feel comfortable, but especially women. And the only way that we can do that is to be vocal and to talk about it. And I, I, I think this Me Too movement is incredible because it gives us a platform to have these conversations. And if someone tells me we've taken it too far, I just want to go tell them, to, you know, you know where you can like take it because I think it, um, I mean, it's important. And and by the way, if if men would hear the stories that we have to tell, they wouldn't feel like we've taken it too far because it, it, it was taken too far the other direction. And so. You know, I I am so proud of the women who are speaking up, um, and I am so proud of honestly what's happened yesterday because um, stuff sucks, and we're so embarrassed about it, especially when we take ourselves so seriously and we feel like we come to work every day to provide value. We're smart and intelligent, and that's why I would say, you know, be be vocal. and And I my organization knows this, and we've had. A lot of headlines that I've had to address with you know women's groups around the organization, where they know I have an open door policy, and they know we take it really seriously, and they know that there's no sweeping things under the rug. Um, and I promise you, you're not going to find a female CEO. Actually, I don't know that. I've never seen a female <laughs> CEO who has ever um, or heard about a female CEO who is sexually harassed. And I would say that the more women that can have these open door policies and address them immediately and also aren't afraid to terminate people as a result, no matter how powerful they are in the organization, the better and I, I think we're at a really different place in um, corporate culture and in, you know, in work culture in general and I'm really proud to be a part of it and I know that my daughter who's 10 and my other daughter who's 20, I hope that they don't feel and see what I saw when I was you know, 23 years old entering the workplace.
1: Manny, I just wanna reinforce something that you that was embedded in what you just said, because this is so important, that so many women, certainly of our generation for sure, but I think it continues, are given the message that you should let this roll off your back. Um, that it, it doesn't matter, let it go. Um, it does matter. And part of what we heard yesterday in the testimony is that experiences like those last in you forever. Um, So, one of the things that's important is to knowledge that those things hurt. They hurt the other people that they happen to. So Whether it's you, or whether it's people that come to you to share this information, to acknowledge that this is hurtful, it's painful, um, and its impact is lasting. And so it's not just a matter of correcting it for the benefit of the organization or someone's career. It's the humane thing to do, to let people who have experienced these things have a voice and treat them with respect. And you can see clearly from the work that you've done and the way that you articulate this so beautiful, that it has so much to do with creating a safe and supportive culture. And that it's not only women who do this that it's incredibly important to have more and more women as a way of messaging this, giving role models for behavior and making safe places. But I love that you can also celebrate the male leadership that you've had, that you've hired, that's been around, that also helped to create a whole culture. And that I think the Tinder story is important because Tinder corrected itself.
2: That's right, I did. And I think that, you know what, it's funny because at Tinder sometimes there's so many sensational headlines and what people see outside of the headlines is very different than the culture that they're working in day to day. And I, I just think that that matters. And culture can change and it changes at the top. And not just at the CEO level, but it changes across all leadership.
1: So in that spirit of being proactive and growing, One of the things that I find so amazing about you and your career is you started even by saying, I was an English Lit major, I went to math camp, you read this ginormous tech company. How do you learn the things you don't know? Because while you clearly know a lot, I'm going to guess you couldn't take the role of everybody who works for you.
2: Well, I have seen in my career, especially in tech, that there's such a big... There's a dynamic that's like, I gotta be the smartest guy in the room. Um, I actually don't see that with women. Um, I don't think women are um, afraid of showing their gaps and weaknesses nearly to the degree that men are. I don't know why that is. I'm sure there's some psychology to it. I think that um, admitting weaknesses and gaps is probably one of the most powerful thing that an executive can do regardless of male or females. And truly, I actually understand where I'm very weak, and I have plugged those gaps pretty aggressively, and I'm pretty open with the team about it, and everyone on my team can tell me where I'm strong, where I have deficiencies, but that's, I think, one of the benefits that we have. We, we probably have more intuition, and probably, uh, frankly, probably more self-doubt than men, but we can use it to our advantage as well, and so I would say that, um, you know, it's funny. I think women sometimes are like, they i will tell you this like funny story which is very very different about how women approach things than men approach things so uh, i've been on a couple of public companies one um, was a company that we took public and another one is a big retail public company that i'm on them on the jc petty board um, but when i was talking to um, the recruiter they were, they were recruiting me and there's there's a huge movement of course as we know to get more Female um, directors—it's important, um, and it's very hard because a lot of companies want experience. But then, how are you going to get a female experienced director if there's no female directors out there? And so, it's a little bit of a chicken and the egg, and companies make real investments to bring people—you know—bring women in particular on board. So, I was talking to a woman who's a recruiter, one of the top um, recruiters in the country. For a board CEO practice, and she was looking for, it actually wasn't JCPenney, it was another board, and she was looking for a female board member with consumer internet experience, and I sort of fit the bill. And I said to her, she was telling me about the company, and I said, um, That's really interesting. How can how can I add value? And she said, That's the craziest question I've heard. And I said, Why? She goes, Because I, I interview men all the time, and I interview women, and Every time I talk to a man, they, can you guess what they say? I said, yes, how much money am I going to make? It's like, yes. <laughs> and so women have these things like, I want to add value. I want to make sure that I am contributing. Um, and women's the other way around what is in it for me. And so I, I think that's an asset for us because um, we can use that, I think, which can be very empowering to organizations to figure out how do we give and do more.
1: Not to mention there's that Wharton professor who encouraged us to be givers and not takers, and we can see that it's good for organizations, but that's an example of that as well. So Mandy, with the few minutes that we have left, um, what's next for you? Where do you wanna grow? How do you wanna, because you know, your career's not done yet. That is a good question. And I've been
2: on this insane learning curve, which is so fun and exhausting. So I would say, the one thing I'd say is like, you know, you can doubt yourself all you want just dive in and you'll sink or swim but it's kind of it's a a, you test yourself so because I've certainly tested myself this year and um we've had you know the best year we've had in our 20-year history so um it's been phenomenal um you know I think there's it's funny at this stage in my career and I'm still really young but I think that uh I've watched my husband's journey, and I'll tell you a little bit about his journey, which is sort of interesting. He worked at McKinsey, he's a consultant. He and I worked for a software company, my first job right after business school. And he had a bit of a, um, this, he's from South India, from Kerala, and um, he had a bit of a crisis, his father passed away, and it really spent a lot of time going back and forth to India. And he said, it just sort of forced him to think like, what do i want to do with my life and is this what i want to do i want to be in a you know in a, in a um, project at, at McKinsey, you know working 20 hours a day for the rest of my life um, and so he came back and said i want to do two things i want to and we have two daughters and he really believes in strong women as you can imagine there's so many strong women with strong opinions in our house um, but he said, I want to figure out a way to be connected in India and to give back to to girls and to girls' education. So he started a textile company where um, uh, 50% of the profits go to girls' education. And, and he, it's funny, he's like, you know, worked harder, made less money, and given more, both time and money, in the last few years than his entire life. And he feels so um, inspired by it. And I would say he, of course, rubs off on me. And I think that... Um, I I need to do more of this. I need to talk more to women about um, about our journey and what we can do and how we can change things together. And I think that I've been starting it in our organization, looking at everything from like benefits to policy to pay, and and figuring out you know how can we as female leaders and you all are going to be the future leaders of companies and banks and you know consulting firms. But how do we affect the next generation and what is the small part that I can serve in doing that, you know, in the world we live in today? So we'll see. Right now, my head's down. I'm like sort of swimming right now with all the um, exciting, crazy work we have going on. But I do think there is a bigger purpose and it has a lot to do with the people in this room and what we can do together.
1: And that was Mandy Ginsberg, the CEO of Match Group, talking with me at the Wharton Women in Business Summit. I'm Laura Zauer, and you're listening to Women at Work on Business Radio here on Sirius XM 132. I'm here with Kristen Warnquist, one of the amazing women who was at the Wharton Women in Business Summit with me on Friday here at the Union League in Philadelphia. So, Kristen, welcome to Women at Work.
0: Hi. Thank you for having me.
1: So as you were sitting out there, how was this resonating with you? What were the kind of things that you kind of left thinking about?
0: Well, one of the biggest things that I could not stop thinking about was the fact that she was a single mom while she was an MBA student here at Wharton.
1: Yeah, that was just amazing. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I mean, I, um, I'm i in the Wharton community, and you come across parents that are students, but they're usually men. <laughs> <laughs> and they usually have a partner at home. And so I, I just was wondering about all these different things that we sort of take for granted that she had to figure out how to do with a child at home.
1: Like what in particular?
0: Um, Like recruiting, for example. Oh, that's
1: a really good question.
0: Um, And I was thinking to myself, did she have to hide the fact that she was a single mom when she was going through these recruiting events and info sessions? Um,
1: It's a really good question. Well, we can't (laughs) ask her that right now, one of the things she told me when we were, because we had a conversation before we did the event at the Union League, Uh and she talked about how important the Wharton community was, Mm -hmm. that she didn't expect it when she came here, but that when she explained, I need to be home because the baby's napping, the study teams would come to her house. Oh,
0: That's another thing I was wondering about was the logistics because these group projects really take over your life. And it's a lot of like FaceTime with these with your classmates outside of class.
1: Yes. I don't Uh, think she was doing things like some of our students do now, like go trekking in Nepal and take the international (laughs) trips. But it was I loved the way that she a reflected back how supportive the Wharton community was Uh and that when she shared who she was, they rose to the occasion. Mm -hmm. And that I think that was probably a model for her that she clearly carried into her work life.
0: Yeah, I I would think that it sort of changes your leadership style and even your level of confidence when you're entering the professional world and you can't just focus on your own insecurities because you have to think about (laughs) somebody else. It's not all about you. And so I... Yeah, I was wondering if if that's part of the reason why she was so successful in her career, because she had to start off like that.
1: It's a really interesting question, because I do think it's one of the things that parenthood does for you, Uh that uh, unfortunately employers look at how parenthood diverts your attention as opposed to thinking about how it changes you for the better as a person. Mm -hmm. Like you become less selfish. You have to be. Yeah, and you start to really think about how do I take care of other people? Mm-hmm. How that my success is effect, is reflected in how the people around me do, and you can see how Mandy brings that to everything she does.
0: Yeah, and there's also just the fact that your time is precious, and so you have to make every minute <laughs> count and you're therefore probably a lot more productive and it just carries over into a lot of other things. It's
1: true. And also think about it, a candor that she had to have then because she couldn't hide that. Yeah. She shared with 500 people in front of the Union League. Yeah. You know, she talked to us about when her mom had ovarian cancer, about her own designated, like when she discovered she had the BRCA gene. Right,
0: right. Explained
1: her surgeries. Yeah. I think that took a lot of comfort and courage at the Mm -hmm. same time. Mm -hmm. Did it strike you the same way?
0: Yeah, that's something else that I that I remember is just the fact that, I mean, she's sharing that with us, but before us, she had to share that with her entire company. And it was a very public thing. Um, And yeah, you really have to just let down your walls. And I liked the point that she made about how like she could have kept it a secret, but then it would have been weirder if she had just disappeared (laughs) for a couple of weeks while she was having a surgery. And that it also ended up making other people feel okay sharing their experiences. As
1: a result, if you had something like that that was personal, do you mm-hmm. feel like you could come into work and tell us about it?
0: I think so. I think that it's important to f- to be open and feel like you can share that with people, especially if you're spending most of your waking hours around these people. And, like and You shouldn't have to harbor a secret uh, like that. And... So I would. Yeah.
1: (laughs) And does that apply to all the different work cultures you've been in? Or do you feel like some Uh, would be more accepting than others?
0: uh, No, it does not apply to all the work cultures (laughs) I've been in. Um, I think as my career has progressed, I've been fortunate to have the level of uh, comfort with my colleagues go up. And so um, I, I, I think my first job out of college, it was strictly business. We didn't really talk much about our personal lives, and I didn't even find out until maybe six months into the job that my boss even had children. Like I <laughs> thought he was a single father. I he never gave any indication to it. Um, and since then, I've been in places where it's it's a lot more. Um, I don't know. There's just a lot more to be shared. And it's not weird. (laughs) So it makes you feel like
1: you could share, too.
0: Exactly. I think it goes both ways.
1: Let me ask you another question. One Mm -hmm. of the things that we were very mindful of Mm -hmm. is, you know, we were tearing ourselves, those of us who were running it and speaking, away from the news in order to come be at the conference. Mm -hmm. And we felt like what was going on with the hearings was so important that, especially being at a Women in Business conference, that Mm -hmm. we couldn't tune it out. But we also wanted to be talking about the bigger context. Mm -hmm. How did it feel for you? How did it feel going in? And how did you feel leaving?
0: Yeah, it was. the timing of it all was pretty remarkable. I think that, in a way, it added to the conversation in a in a healthy way and sort of got us thinking about more than just women in business, but women as, as a whole in our society. And so I think that was an important conversation to have. Um, and just to add on to that, something that even amplified it was the, the venue itself was just also in stark contrast with (laughs) the event that was happening there. It was lovely, but the pictures of all the past presidents on the walls looking down on us just created an interesting effect. Right, as they as they
1: circle the entire ballroom in which we were seated.
0: Literally. All
1: the men who had run the organization. Yeah. It made that call from Mandy to get more women into leadership roles really resound in a different it, way. It
0: totally did, because you see, this is actually what we've been facing. And so um, I like that anecdote about, that Mary Ellen Riley shared at the beginning about her friend's mom, who ultimately became the first President of that union league, Mm -hmm. um, and how they went to dinner the first evening that women were allowed in there, I guess. And here we are, I don't know, 500, 600 women at that conference, just like dominating the place was really you just kind of drove home how much progress we've made even though there's still a lot more. Kristen, to be done. I,
1: I couldn't have put it better. <laughs> I thought that it was a really um, beautiful note that also it took a certain amount of courage and clarity to be mm-hmm. the first woman in that room. Yeah. And that um, the way that Mary Ellen said just by being there mm-hmm. without making a big fuss about it you knew that she was doing something that really mattered. Mm-hmm. And now we see 500 women including you, who (laughs) are in that room and who are going to go out. And you may all wind up, once again, being the first woman in that room, but you're paving the way for hundreds Mm -hmm. and hundreds more that come after you.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: Kristen, thanks for joining us today.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: Thank you all so much for joining us today. If you have a question about something you heard on today's show, email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at BizRadio132 and at Laura's Arrow. A very special thank you to Mandy Ginsburg, as well as Caitlin Van Cooten and the entire team behind this year's Wharton Women in Business Summit. I'd also be remiss if I didn't thank my beloved producer, Patty Hall, associate producer and editing wizard, Dion Simpkins, and the fantastic Kristen Warnquist. I'm Laura Zarro, and you've been listening to Women at Work on Sirius XM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Dare to lead, ladies, and have a great week.